Hello, and welcome to this episode of Fathom in Conversation, a new economics podcast. This is brought to you by Fathom Consulting, an independent research consultancy specializing in macroeconomics, geopolitics, and financial markets. In this series, titled The Rise of China, we explore the emergence of China, its extraordinary economic boom, and the impact that's had on the rest of the world. Each episode features an in-depth discussion with Fathom's team of economists, who use their knowledge and expertise to provide insights into the Chinese economy. Episode 10, Back to the Future. Hi, I'm Andrew Harris, and I'm joined once again by Eric Britton. Hello. So, economists are are always confronted with a long list of problems, and we're expected to have solutions for all of them. Uh, In 2019, the set of problems that we're confronted with includes weak productivity, uh, high debt, low interest rates, low inflation. As a community of macroeconomists, we've been searching for a single unifying theory that could tie all of these together. So my question for you, Eric, is do you think that could be China? Yes, it could. And I much prefer a, a philosophical approach that really tries to identify what's going on behind weak productivity, high debt, low rates, low inflation, all of those factors that you drew attention to, rather than just say, well, there's some process out there that's far too complicated to explain, and let's assume that that's behind it. It's like uh, when you have a film, and in that film the whole plot is tied up by the existence of aliens or magic or supernatural forces or something. Um, it's, it's a cop-out. I don't like it. I don't like that in economics either. It, or it's like in the film that I'm sure people are familiar with that's called Back to the Future, in which the magic thing that gets the car to transform into a time machine is a mechanical device known as a flux capacitor. What the flux capacitor does, nobody knows. Uh, It's complicated. It's exceptionally complicated. And all the difficult concepts about time travel, how that's feasible, uh, what it implies for logical loops and all that kind of thing, are just essentially conceptually tossed into the flux capacitor and then treated as though they've been dealt with in that film and we don't have to worry about them anymore. And economists have a tendency to do something similar. Let's assume there's something really complicated out there that we don't understand that ties up all of these things. I'd like to do better than that. And that's our aim in Fathom, is to try and really unpick what's going on that ties all of these things together. And there is a case to argue that that thing is China. That's where we're going with this episode. So uh, we've already argued in the rest of the series that it's been, you know, the emergence of China which has seen cheap imports, a bidding down of wages, you know, a massive increase in Chinese lending to the rest of the world. All these kind of things have had a large effect on the global economy and arguably led to the build-up of excesses that resulted in the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So with China slowing once again, is there a chance that they will revert to their old tactics? Can they revert to those old tactics? And will that lead to a similar outcome as it did before? Yeah, so just to rehearse that idea, um, China's uh, excess savings that the Chinese economy was generating for a decade or more um, after uh, the emerging Asian crisis of 97-98 were so large as to be really distortionary at the global level, not just for China, but for the global economy as a whole. And those distortionary effects arise because what's happening is capital, resources are being 
pushed into the wrong places, capital being pushed uphill out of emerging economies where the returns to that capital are relatively high and into advanced economies where the returns to that capital and other resources are pretty low. Those effects are not small. They're huge at the global level. It's a global misallocation of resources in huge scale that's arisen as a result of China's uh, actions and the amplification of those actions by uh, Western and advanced economies uh, themselves over the last decade or so that's led to this whole set of outcomes. High debt, low interest rates, weak productivity and low inflation are all the result of that misallocation of resources that had arisen over that period. Can they do it again? Absolutely they can. It's not going to be quite the same. Back to the future, um, if you remember those films, things changed each time uh, you travelled in time. It wasn't the same future that you would travel back to uh, or the same past that you previously had experienced. The same is true here. It's not going to be a rerun of exactly the same process that happened in the early noughties. Instead, this time, if China is going to export excess savings and deflation around the world as it did in the noughties, it's going to have to do so either by a huge depreciation of its currency or by huge subsidization of its exports over and above what's already in place. So in a structural sense, China's currency is substantially undervalued already. For this game to be on, it's going to have to become much more undervalued than that in real terms, either because the currency falls or because export prices fall and fall sharply. It's possible. If it were to happen, it would have the same effects again on the global economy uh, that it did last time. And um, in terms of the trigger for China reverting to its old growth model, um, so we've said that it might be trade wars and that investors are clearly worried about this. Uh, we have our own China Exposure Index, which is available on uh, Refinitiv's data stream product. And that shows clearly that investors are worried about a trade war now, much more worried than they were, say, a year ago. But then there's there's other possible reasons for for them attempting to double down and go back to the future. Uh, yes, uh, the the reasons uh, have to do with a slowdown that's in place in the Chinese economy right now, uh, a slowdown that's that's potentially very um, dangerous or might be perceived as dangerous by the regime there. Uh, what they fear above all is anything that might threaten uh, the regime and the sorts of things that they're concerned about there are growth increases in unemployment or uh, falls in real income for the people that are the key supporters of the regime, which is to say people who work in factories in the coastal cities uh, serving export markets to advanced economies. Those are essentially the clients of the Chinese state. And if those people see their income falling or, or weakening or unemployment rising, um, then there's a potential threat to the regime in China. And that's something that they'll definitely want to prevent uh, if they possibly can. And one way to prevent it is to double down on the old growth uh, model, which served them so well over the decade and more ahead of the financial crisis, and exploit as far as possible the capacity for advanced economies to absorb their excess capacity that the Chinese economy is creating. In other words, to buy even more of the stuff that China produces. And the way they'll do that is by bidding down the price of that stuff even further than it's already gone. 
and we've run simulations on our, our macroeconomic model. So we have a global model um, which covers the majority of the world economy in quite some detail. And running the China back to the future scenario through that model shows that massive buildup of, of debt and potentially an even worse recession in 2025. Absolutely. So inflation rising in advanced economies, particularly in the US, interest rates following suit, both policy rates from the Fed and other central banks, and long rates with risk spreads widening and the slope of the yield curve steepening and all of those factors in place, traditional hallmarks of overheating and inflation in advanced economies. And it's that kind of style of uh, growth and inflation that leads to recession. But what if the inflation doesn't come? And what if the reason for that is the same reason it didn't come in the noughties, which is to say export of deflation by China? What if that process were to repeat itself? Well then, the Fed will not tighten. Risk spreads will not widen. The yield curve will not steepen. And therefore, we will not get recession. Instead, what we will get is another credit cycle like we saw from 2003-04 onwards, uh, and the consequence of that, which will be ballooning asset prices, overextended banks and other lending institutions, overextended households and corporates and possibly governments too, and the inevitable crash that will follow it, a rerun of 07-08, perhaps in 2025. So we'll avoid the relatively benign or small recession, but the cost will be a much bigger uh, financial crisis in 2025 or thereabout. Okay, so thank you for that. Not very cheery. Uh, no one wants to see a repeat of 2008-2009, but potentially on the cards, I guess. Well, on that note, we're brought to the end of our episode and also to the end of our series. Uh, over the last nine episodes, we've discussed how Deng Xiaoping's growth model has lifted hundreds of millions out of poverty, how the country's emergence has stifled inflation and accelerated the flow of manufacturing jobs from developed to emerging market economies. We've also discussed the role that Chinese lending played in the build-up to the global financial crisis and the impact that crisis had and continues to have on the Chinese economy. We've answered questions like whether the country is going to rebalance towards a sustainable growth model, whether it has developed effective methods of acquiring technical know-how and successfully penetrated high-end production markets, and whether China's emergence has allowed it to challenge US dominance of the global economy. We began this series with a quote uh, asking whether China has reached the hour of its destiny. As I said back then, uh, 1910 wasn't that hour. Could today be? Undoubtedly, China is at a crucial juncture. Can it break through the middle-income trap? Will it reform? or double down on its old growth model. With its economy now worth 20% of global GDP, what it does clearly matters for the rest of the world. I'd like to say thank you to Eric for joining me today. Thanks. Before we go, I'd like to thank everyone involved with the production of this podcast, and to all those who've listened in. I sincerely hope you've enjoyed Series 1 of Fathom in Conversation. To understand more about the work that Fathom does, both on China and the global economy, then why not look at our website, fathom-consulting.com and feel free to drop us a line with any questions. Lastly, make sure you subscribe to ensure you keep up to date with future Fathom content. Thank you for listening to Fathom in Conversation. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Fathom Consulting, presented by me, Andrew Harris, and both edited and produced by Liara Gabbay.
Fathom is an independent consultancy specializing in global macroeconomics, geopolitics, and financial market research. Our economists also produce in-depth research in China, and we have built a suite of analytical indicators specifically to monitor the Chinese economy. To find out more about our research and bespoke consultancy work, go to fathom-consulting.com. If you're interested in the data side of things, check out Fathom's chart book on Refinitiv's data stream and icon platform. This is our library of over 9,000 ready-made charts containing up-to-date global, macroeconomic and financial market data. Simply type CBook into your icon search bar to find out more. From all of us here at Fathom, thanks for listening to Fathom and Conversations.